Esther 2, 5 through 10, and Esther 2, 16 through 20. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jar, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Mordecai was the legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, keeper of the women. The young women pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she had received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the 10th month, the month Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still did not reveal her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Amen. How you guys doing today? You good? Good, good. I mean, I don't know how many of you guys have been here for a while, but if you have, throughout the month of August, we always take a, a month off and we stop and we do our DNA series. And in our DNA, we basically talk about the this concept of who we are and where we're going, you know, as a church. And so here, um, we're about to begin a new series and we're going to be kicking off the series of Esther. Esther, we named the series Living in the Tension, Living in the Tension. And um, in the subtitle in there is basically courageous conversations or courageous, um, courageous choices in a world of uncertainty. Courageous choices in a world of uncertainty. Let me ask you a question. How many of you guys have ever been in a sermon series on the book of Esther? All right. So we have a few. A few people on, they have done a sermon series on the book of Esther. You know, really, the, the book of Esther is a very interesting book, and we're going to get into all of that um, today. But let me just kind of frame some of the reasons why we're going to be jumping into this book. In 2016, basically, I don't know if you guys remember, but I think it was around November 2nd or 3rd, um, I was up late at night at 2 in the morning, and I heard some news that really shocked North America, or it really shocked Americans specifically, and it was the, the words that Donald Trump became the next president. And I remember during that time that the world 
was were shocked. One, just based upon, because no one thought he was going to win, you know, during that time in, this, in 2016, and really how what it did to the nation. Um, during that time, I was basically flipping through all the different channels. Uh, I started flipping through CNBC, Fox, uh, you know, CNN, all the different channels. And, you know, these stations, if you flip through those channels, you know one thing that nobody agrees you know, none of those stations agree with anything. It could be the same fact, the same issue, but nobody is agreeing. They're all looking at it from a very different perspective. But on that night, what was very interesting, what was very interesting is that during the time in a place where there was nobody in agreement, there was one agreement. And they kept saying over and over again, this country is divided. This country is divided. No matter if I flip to CNN, Fox, CNBC, or Fox, you know, or no matter what news station, you heard over and over and over again that we were a divided nation. And so what we did as a church, we was just like, we have to address it, especially being um, a church that is in this city that looks like the city, and our goal is always to reflect the city. You know, and so pastoring a church that is a minority majority or multi-ethnic church, and we knew that we have people on both sides of the fence of that, we said, hey, we have to be able to do a couple of things. We have to, one, we have to run to the tension that is coming on, that this country is divided, but we have to run with the heart of reconciliation. And so on this, we said we need to run to this tension, but we have to run with the heart of reconciliation. So what we did is that we came on that next Sunday, that very next Sunday, and we said, hey, what we're going to do is that we're going to gather. We're going to gather for an hour before service, hour, hour and a half before service, and we are going to address this issue. So, you know, modern day Sunday school. And so at that time, Basically, we came together, and then each and every Sunday, you know, let's just say um, an hour, an hour and a half before, we got people in the room, and the room was um, filled just like this. And then we just simply asked the questions. We started asking the question about, um, you know, about the, the country and where we are and that the fact that we were divided. So in here, what ended up taking place is that I was just like, let's just kind of run to this tension. Let's just run directly to it. And so we literally, let's just imagine everybody was sitting in this, you know, the middle section. And I said, all right, all right, everybody come to the middle section. And I said, hey, if you voted for President Trump, go on this side. If you voted for, I forgot who was the other, Hillary, Hillary Clinton, go on this side. And so, you know, and then some people actually got up and walked over to the side that they, that they were in. And some people was like, I'm not playing your game, Dahadi. I am not doing that with you right now at this moment. It is not happening. And so that, that literally took place. And we was just like, we did. And, and I didn't stop there. I said, if you're a Democrat, go on this side. If you're a Republican, go on this side. If you're, and I just tried to find all of the most uncomfortable situations that anybody could have. And I said, choose a side. Choose a side, choose. And then, you know, after I did it and after kind of uh, I made my point, I said, listen, here's the truth. There's so much that we can divide it for and we can be divided about. But here's the thing. The question becomes is not about simply who, you know, what we're against, but it's about who we are for. And then I talked about this idea of, of just like us rallying around our Savior. But here's a couple of things that I was trying to get out there. I was basically challenging or asking the congregation at that time and those that would come, I says, are you willing to make courageous choices in a time of compromise or in a time of uncertainty? Are you willing to stand out, understanding that no matter what you say, you are going to be put into a category that people are going to box you into? No matter what the logic or the nuances and all of the things, are you willing to do that? You see, in 2016, that was a hard thing to do. But let me tell you, seven years later, it's even harder. You see, now we have this thing is that we, we have this ability to say, hey, here's the reality, that you are either the oppressed or the oppressor. No matter what you say, that either you are a part of being oppressed or you are either intentionally oppressing or you are allowing the system to continue to oppress us. So as, as soon as I say to you, hey, who did you guys vote for in this past election? Like, real question, who, who did you vote for? Right? 
How did you vote in the, for the Senate race? What's your view on gender politics? What about sexual identity? You're a Democrat, you're a Republican, right? And I can bring out some real interesting topics. And as soon as you say something, you know what everybody else is going to put you in? A box, a category. They're going to tell you exactly what you are. Not, they don't care about the nuances because our natural business, we want to go into explaining why we are and what we did and the reason why and go into an explanation, but no one cares because you're either a part of the oppressed or you are either oppressing or allowing a system of oppression to continue on. And so the question becomes for us, do as Christians, do we just be quiet, shut up, stay in our place? Or like some of the people talk to the athletes, just dribble the ball. Or just go to church. What are we are supposed to do in a time where you know that whatever you say is going to cause division? Mask or no mask, COVID, no COVID. Democrat, Republican, the next election cycle. And we're about to come up on another and we're going to see again the country divide. And so the question is, is how, as believers, how are we going to live courageously in a world of compromise? And not only compromise, but in a world of uncertainty. You see, what happens when God doesn't come down and says, vote for, think about, believe this? What happens when, you're, when you don't really know, and it's kind of it's like left up to you? What happens? How do we live in these uncertain times? How do we go about it? You see, one of the things that we were trying to do is one, it's like, are we going to live courageously in that? But here's the thing that one of, one of the statements that Angie and I and our family, we live by um, on a consistent basis. And what I really wanted to get out more than even getting out what you voted for we wanted to, you to recognize a couple of things. Number one is that simply people are people. And then the second truth is that everybody has a story. People are people and everybody has a story. And here's the thing. When you recognize that people are people and everybody has a story, then you come to the conclusion of this. You recognize that context matters. Context matters. Well, he's like, well, what do you mean, Dahadi? You, we all understand the, the, the concept of, I've heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its what? Cover. We, we recognize that. We know that. But here's how it is ultimately fleshed out for many of us. You know, let's just say all of us, we are, most of us are driving, of driving age, right? And we all drive and do different things. Now, when someone cuts you off, what happens? Like, you get mad. You get rage. Like, there were some words that I wanted to say, but I was just like, yes, I know we are in church. Right? And, and there's words that you would want to say and things, and you're just like, there is no mercy. You're an idiot. Why in the world did you cut me off and all, right? But however, when you cut someone off, you're like, oh, you know, it was a bad day with the kids. I'm sorry. I'm in a hurry. Like, there's all type of things in context that you want them to understand so that you can understand why, they, why you cut them off, right? You see, when others do things to you, they're jerks. But when you do things to others, you want people to understand the context, and so what we basically understand is, is that two things that people are people. Everybody has been created in the image of God. Everybody is created in the image of God. Um, Mr. Rogers basically said it this way. He says, there isn't anyone you can't learn from once you've heard their story. Once you've heard their story. Andrew Statton Basically, he's the writer of the book Finding Nemo, or not the book, the story. The movie Finding Nemo just keeps swimming, just keeps, right? 
He says, in hearing the stories of others allows us to experience our similarities and differences, whether they're real or imagined. There's this something about story. There's something about context. There's this something that has. And so what we're ultimately doing is that when people live courageously or when you live courageously, you hope and you desire and you want for people to discern your actions, but you want them to discern them with empathy understand I'm not a bad person. Understand the context of what's going on. And this is the reason the Bible tells us to treat others in the same way you want to be treated. So really what we're going to do throughout, we're going to walk through the book of Esther. And the book of Esther is going to give us this picture um, about a couple of people that God raises up to give courageous choices in a time or in a world of tremendous compromise in a time of uncertainty. And the question becomes is how? How do we navigate through these times or through these seasons? Again, we've already read the text, but if you have it, let's turn your Bible to Esther. And we're going to be looking at Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, and we're going to... Um, in Throughout the time, we've already read chapter 2, 5 through 10, and 16 through 23, right? We were thinking about, okay, do we read all two chapters? But we decided not to do that, and so we just gave these sections. But we want you to go back, and we want you to read the first two chapters of Esther, because this is the beginning of our story. This is the beginning of our story on the book, of Esther. I think it's really important for us to understand the power of story, the power of context, the power of understanding what's going on. And just like that, God gives us a historical nar- narrative to teach us something about him and his people in a time of tremendous compromise and a tr- in a time of uncertainty. And so in here, we, we see Esther's chapter one and two, Recognize that every good story has five core components. I don't care how you think it. Many people talk about it and look at it from a variety of different ways, but there's five distinctives in every good story. The first distinctive in a good story is there's a summary. There's a summary in every story that basically lays the, con- the context, the foundation. It lays like what's going on in the world. But after they, the, the foundation has been laid, we got to like, we know, all, we know that we're in a far, far distant galaxy, you know. Then the second thing is that there is a crisis that comes. So that as soon as you introduce kind of what's going on, the thing is that there's a problem right? There's a problem that goes that is in this story that is, needs to be overcome, that is challenging. That story, that's the point where it's drawing you in, that you recognize that man, Liam Neeson's daughter has been taken for the hundredth time, right? And you just kind of like, man, just something like, just like how many times can your daughter get left and taken? But so you have this going on. So there's a problem, Right? But then that problem, the third thing is that it gets up to a rising tension. Like it's at the point of like she is about to die. And if he doesn't do something right now, it's kind of at the climax and a rising tension that something's about to happen. And no matter, even though we know that most of the time the hero is going to somehow win, we still get to that point like, oh my goodness, right? But then after that, then there is a solution. The solution then comes, the hero saves the day. There's a redemptive story that, you know, is where we get the point, the moral of the story. What's the moral of the story? What's the point of the story, right? And then there's a conclusion. In the conclusion, the best of conclusions of good stories, basically there's a point where they draw you in and then they basically send you out and you says, man, I want to be a better this or I want to be a better that or I want to do this or I want to do that. It compels you to some type of action. Right? So all good stories have those five components. And so just like utilizing that framework, we also have a similar framework right here in the book of Esther. Esther starts off in chapter one just simply giving us solely a context. It just said, let me just set up the background of what's going on. There's no mentioning of Esther that's going to come up. There's no mentioning who is going to be our main character. There's no mentioning of her uncle Mordecai, who is also going to be a guide through this story. There's no mention of just a lot of things of of really what's happening. 
What Simply Chapter 1 is, is like, hey, let me set up the background. Let me set up what's going on in this story. So that by the time that you get to 2.5, where we read, just go back up one verse there, and it says, it starts off in 2.4, in where it says, the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. The suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. How in the world do we get to this point where this, you know, Vashti, who was the former queen, is no longer queen, and now the king is ready to choose a new bride. How do we get to that point? So earlier in the passage, basically one of the things that you see in one and four, it says that he displayed, um, Esther, I'm sorry, King Ahasuerus, basically threw this big party. He starts off, here it is, it's a young king who's just three years into his term. He's just like trying to show what, like his moxie, what he has. And he's basically throwing a six-month party. Seriously, six months. He throws this um, six-month party, basically trying, and the reason and the purpose of this party, basically in verse 4 of chapter 1, says is so that he can show off his magnificent splendor of his greatness. Just so he can just show about, man, how much he's flexing, how much, how much he got, how much um, he has. And so for six months, he's just sending through all, just showing all of his wealth right? Showing all of his authority, showing all of what he has and just kind of letting, he gathers all of the kind of the, the, the officials, all of the people. Now, here we have, this is a man that you would think that would have some security, you know, because here, here he is that he's going through and talking about all of these things, but he was just like, he, um, he talked about a man who ruled 127 provinces, from India all the way to Kush. He was ruling all of these things. He had the largest empire, the largest thing. But again, his father, King Darius, just died. His father was defeated in a battle by the Greeks. And here he is now, young in his career. He's trying to show off how good he is, how much power he has, how much wealth he obtains. But, you know, but not only does he show off his wealth, he was just like, man, I, you know, not only do I have wealth, not only do I got power, but I got women as well. And he says, and he, you know, he talks about all the different concubines that he has and that we're going to see throughout this text. But then he comes to the point where he says, and let me just show you the most beautiful of them all, Vashti. I'm going to call Vashti in. And so, but at the same time, Vashti is basically throwing her own party. The text doesn't let us know the reason why, but he goes and he sends for Vashti to come in, and then Vashti's like, nah, I'm not coming. And so that pisses the king off. Can I use piss? And <laughs> It makes him mad, right? And he's going through this and so he's just like, man, what am I gonna do? Because I'm trying to floss, I'm trying to show all of my power, all of my wealth, all of my women, and she's showing me up. So what did she do? She he calls the the people. He says, All the people, all the clothes, come in. I want to talk to you guys about something. What do I need to do? All the people's like, I'm vexed too, because listen, if you can't control your woman, that's gonna be a problem for, my, for us all. So we got to do this because we got to make sure something happens because if something doesn't happen, we all going to have problems in the home. So, hey, you got to make it happen, Captain. Right? And so he's basically going through this and he says, all right, listen, you're no longer queen. I'm mad. And that's it. And it's done. He eliminates Vashti. Now, chapter 2, basically he says, In chapter 2, 1, it says the king calmed down. He was just like, man, I was in my emotions when when all of that happened. And, you know, and even though I can get all the the women and all the stuff that I want, but I mean, I had a little sensitive spot for Vashti. And now I'm all alone and I don't know what's going to happen. And so what happens is that his wise man comes in and is like, hey, 
man, here's what we're going to do. Let's just go gather all the different virgins across the countries, all the different 127 different um, countries that you have. Let's bring them all together. Let's go take them, right? Not by choice. Let's go take them, bring them here, and let's just parade, parade them one by one by one by one. And it's like, and you just go each and every night. You have a different one, different And those that you like, you keep. And those that you don't, you don't have to. Why don't we just do that? He was like, that's a good, that's a good idea. Let's do it. And now we get to 2-4. And in 2-4, that's where we get the context of what was, what was being said. It says, the young, then the young women who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So, we got to recognize context matters. We got to understand that here, the king, the most powerful man, who is called Ahasuerus, who's trying to show off his might, show off his women, show off his wealth. Um, he is the guy, and he's like caught up right now. And by the way, side note, how many of you guys seen the movie 300? Y'all seen the movie 300? No? Okay, stop. We got to watch 300. And then we got to, right? Anyway, the movie 300, um, King Ahasuerus is basically Xerxes. It's the same person, right? He is the king. King Darius, the, his previous, was defeated by the 300, the Greek soldier, Sparta, right? Those 300, those, those Spartans were dead. And so Xerxes basically mounts up all of his army, all of his power, and he goes back. And guess what happens to him? He loses as well. Even though he defeats them, he ends up losing the war. And that's where we get the, the, the amount of 300. And so all of what's going on right now, so he's trying to prove I'm a man's man. I'm a man. And so all of this is going on during his first five years. And so now he's like, bring up all the women from all the places and come, and I'm going to choose. Right? So this is all taking place right here in the context. And so my, my first question could be is like, as if you were one of the people that was summoned, what would you do? What would you do in a world that's full of compromise? In a world that's full of, like, like it don't seem like you have much choices. What would you do? How would you survive? How would you maintain your integrity in a time like this? You see, Oftentimes, we, we try to undersell things, but many of us, we live in a world that is full of compromise. We're put in positions that, you know, is either choose to the left or to the right. And really what ends up taking place is that the best that most of us are doing is just simply trying to survive. Just trying to survive as God's people in a world that's full of compromise. You see, and this is the reason why when we understand that every, people are people and everybody has a story, that what Esther would want you to know as you're reading the stories is like, don't be so quick to judge me as we walk through this story. Don't be so quick to, to judge my uncle. Don't be so quick to do things because, see, there's a story behind all of this. There's a reason why I did the things that I did. Right? There's a reason why so that, 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 we, that I, the things that happen happened, right? And so we recognize, he says, because she's wanting us to understand that people are people. We all have a story. We all have a story. And so what we see is throughout all of this taking place, we see God kind of at act. Because not only do you see what's going on, that every story has a summary, a tension, a, a crisis, a rising tension, a resolution, a conflict, but also every story, according to, um, I forgot the guy's name, put it up on the screen. According to Donald Miller, Donald Miller, um, he talks about kind of with every story has a hero, right? And when you look at the hero, Every story is, introduces a hero, and the character, that character encounters that problem, that they wrestle with whatever that 
tension is. And in there, that problem is manifesting itself both externally, but it's also manifesting itself internally. And then there's also a philosophical tension that's going on ultimately in the story. That hero in that time, in their weak moment, basically meets a guide. And then that guide helps them and gives them a plan right? A plan of action. Here's how you overcome. And in that plan, they call a person to action, right? They call a person to action. And, and then basically they lay the stakes. If you do this action, here's what could happen. But if you don't do this action, here's some of the consequences of what could happen. And so they, they, let the, they define the stakes. And so this is what happens here in this story. So overall, we shift from chapter one, which is focusing in on the context of King Ahasuerus and our Xerxes. They shift from kind of what's going on to now they introduce Esther. And in chapter, um, chapter two, verse four, it talks about, or five, it brings in Esther. And Esther comes in to this place and it says that in the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai. And then it goes through Mordecai's example. And basically what he's trying to say in that time is that Mordecai came from a, a line of aristocrats, the high Jews, that if you recognize that this word Susa is the same place that Daniel was buried. So it's bringing you back to, if you go back to Daniel, the book of Daniel, where you had um, Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and, Abig- and Abednego, right? That these people who were kind of standing firm in the midst, that same place, Susa, that he had dreams and visions of, that is now we are here. We're in this place, and then now we are in that same place, but this happens to be the place where the king, King Xerxes, basically um, had his throne. And so he went through all of that, and so they were aristocrats. That's an important factor to know, because if you were a Jew during this time, you would say it shows you right, because guess what? The king already made the decree that all the Jews that were in exile could go home. All of the Jews. So going back to a little history, God raised up many prophets and says to the, during the times of the kingdom, the kingdom era, there was a saying, listen, he actually raised up um, multiple prophets, over 12 different prophets. He says, hey, repent or God's going to judge you. Repent or God's going to judge you. Repent or God's going to judge you. Guess what? The nation does not repent. God judges them. God raises up Babylon. Babylon takes them into captivity, and they remove them off the land, and they are under dominion. They are under captivity. For 70 years, God prophesies to Daniel and says, for 70 years, they will be enslaved. And after seven years, I'm going to raise up something. We're going to send, some, we're going to send them back. So that first group that we see being sent back in Ezra, chapter, the first six chapters, Ezra leads the first group, all right, or the second group, um, and they lead the, the people back. And so most of the Jews are back. But guess are the ones, guess who didn't go? The people who felt a little comfortable. It's like, hey, I, this is kind of a good thing here. The people who had like, I don't know, it ain't going to be better for me back in Jerusalem. It's going to be a little worse. I kind of like my position. I kind of like my standings. And so what we have is a group of people, post-exilic Jews, who decided not to obey God's conviction or God's word to stay and to go back to Jerusalem, but instead they decided to settle. They decided to stay because it was really comfortable here. I really like it here. And so most of the Jews who were kind of the aristocrats were there. And so this is what we see. Right? So he lets him out. He says, man, this is a guy of wealth. Mordecai ended up becoming the legal guardian of Hadessa, his cousin, basically is known as Esther. This is not uncommon during those times because you had to kind of live this dualistic lifestyle. You had both. You would have both a, a Hebrew name, but you would also have um, a Babylonian name or um, a Persian name right? You see that with Daniel. You see that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like, you see this, is that they would have two names because basically it's kind of the forward fronting of according to who I'm talking with. So we weren't the first to do code switching. Y'all get that later. I'll go Google it later. So, but, so you have this, this back and forth going on. 
that's taking place. And here we are, they're, they're there, and then, but God, um, um, Hadassah or Esther was a beautiful woman, and then this beautiful woman basically um, came to that point. Now the king makes out this command in this edict. He makes it public knowledge, and again, we don't know whether she was forced or whether she was chosen or she chose to, she becomes a part of the women that, was, that had to get brought before the king, right? And so, verse 11, and not only did he not, he wanted to make sure he says, hey, Mordecai gave advice, don't tell people who you are, because if you tell people, it ain't going to look good for us. So, in verse 11 of chapter 2, it says this, every day Mordecai walked in front of the harem courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and to see what was happening to her. There's a lot going on here. You see, what's taking place right here, one of the things, one of the most important things that I have not even mentioned about this book is that not only is there tremendous compromise, but there is a lot of uncertainty, lots of uncertainty. This is the only book in the whole Bible that God's name is not mentioned at all. There's no prayers in this book. There's no mention. There's no fasting. There's, no, there's none of that. There's none of the spiritual disciplines that we talk about of cultivating the Lord that we need to be connected with the Father. None of that is taking place. This is so much. People like Martin Luther was just like, I, this book cannot even be in the canon. This is not like, I don't even know what this is. This is just like some people say, no, this is just good literature. This is just certain things. But you see, but God is making a point, right? That in times where there's so much compromise, in times where there's so much uncertainty, where do you go? How do we still make courageous decisions? How do we still have courageous choices? In a world where we're worrying like, God, are you even there? I don't know about you, but oftentimes that is some of our most Hard times, I was like, God, like I'm praying, I'm asking, I don't hear you. What am I supposed to do? God, if I make a choice, if I say I'm voting this way or if I choose this, then they're going to think I'm this. But if I'm going this way, God, I, like I'm willing to do it. If you just tell me, I want to suffer for you. But if I make the mistake, then am I suffering for just suffering's sake? Someone said, I'm just going to be quiet. I'm just not going to live. I'm just not going to things. And I'm going to spend most of my life hiding my identity. Not being too forthright that I'm one of God's children. So I'll just continue to live in compromise. You see, because in this time, one of the things that you got to know, that as the king was choosing, there was five options that you had. Five options. One, that you would come before the king, and this is the results of what would happen. You would come before the king, and the king was like, I don't like you. Send you off. And it wasn't like they get to go back home. They would go, and they would say, they would go to a certain harem, a place where concubines stay, and they would live the rest of their life as a concubine, not being able to marry anybody, not being able to do anything, but just being a concubine of the king even though you never saw the king. So that's one. The second one is just simply, hey, um, I'll bring you in and, you know, hey, you can be my play toy. I don't like you that much to marry you, but every once in a while. Right? That's option two. Option three is, hey, you may be one of the lucky ones. And because they lived in a polygamous society, you may be one of my wives. You may be one of them, right? So that's what it was. That was option three. And then option four was you actually got chosen to be the next queen. But that, only, that, that title only goes to one person. All of these people from 100 different places, right? And they said, they, scholars said that basically he had ultimately a concubine for every single night. So some believe that he had up to 360 different concubines, different people that he has. And so the, the, those are the four choices. Like with the hottie, I don't like any of those choices. Then you have the fifth choice, die. 
die. Because if you disobeyed the king, then you would be put to death. We're just like, well, I'll just die. Oh, that's real easy for us to say on this side. But when they tell us you can't share your faith, when they tell you you can't be explicitly Christian, when they tell you there's so many times we end up playing the concubine in the world, right? For the hopes that one day we may get something, we may get the prize, right? And so here it is, here's what's going on. You see all of this taking place. These are five different options. Nobody likes any of the options. Really, I really don't even wanna be the queen to this dude, right? All of this is taking place. You got this un, like, young guy trying to fulfill, trying to live up to daddy's expectations, all of these things coming on. And now you have a woman who is compromised. I know you haven't read the text, but my question is simply this. How, is, how would you say Esther's doing? How would you say Esther's doing? Would anybody be like, oh, man, she was a champion. She was one of God's chosen. She was... Right? And you know what's awesome about the book of Esther? The book of Esther makes everybody mad. It makes the liberals mad because here you have, and you're going to look, and go back and read it. It makes the liberals mad because you got this woman who just is like, she listens to everybody. She's just parading her beauty. She's just doing all this stuff. She's going through six months. She's just listening to she, everything her uncle or her cousin Mordecai says. She just does. Like, man, she's setting women back. Right? So people, they don't like them. So the feminists, they, they don't like them. The conservatives don't like them. Why in the world is she there? She's supposed to be back in Jerusalem. Man, and, and by the way, again, we didn't read the text, but if you read the text, not only did they concubines come, but he needed to test out the goods. So he would spend the night with them. He would spend the night. So she's compromised. She's doing all of this, like, Remember, why don't she stand up like Daniel, Shadrach, and Abednego, who says, if we die, we die. Right? Why is she succumbing to the compromise of the world? So the super conservatives don't like her. The liberals don't like her. But you know what all she's doing? She's surviving. She's surviving. That's what she's doing. Right? She's making a courageous choice in a world that's full of compromise. She's wanting, I'm, I'm assuming maybe, God, like, God, are, are you there? Are you going to give me something? Tell me how to navigate this. But, it, like, God, like, you're not even speaking. You didn't say anything to me. Right? And so what we've seen in the past is that God, like with the boys, he would swoop in and, like, the fire was burning, but... They didn't get it. It's like, oh, they're not burning because God is in there in the midst of them. Or he's like Daniel in the lion's den and he's jumping in and like he's like the lion is there, but nothing happens to him. Like that's kind of the story that we have. But what happens when we feel like God isn't there? What happens to us? You see, one scholar says that this is the most real book of the Bible that you and I experience on a daily basis that we are called to make courageous choices in a world that is so compromised and so uncertain. In a world, if you just look at these first few chapters of the book, what is it? That they live in a world that men are known for their wealth, their power, and their women. And the women are known for their sexual beauty and their physical beauty. Aren't you glad that we don't live in a world like this? Aren't you so glad? No, see, that's the point of the book. Is that even in those times that we're dealing with the same struggle, the same world, the same thing, and there's so often that we feel like, God, are you there? Give me something. I want to live courageously, but this world is so compromised. So what I want to do is I want to end, and we're going to take a couple of minutes, and Pastor Carly's going to come up. We're just going to ask him. To have a q and I'm going to give you three things, three things that we get from the book and um, that how we make courageous choices in a compromised and uncertain world. There's three things that we 
three takeaways. Number one is simply this. We have to trust in the providence of God. We got to trust in the providence of God. This is really important because throughout the book, even though God never speaks the whole point, it wasn't like the writer of Esther was just like wrote this book of the Bible and was like, oh man, I forgot to mention God. Like that wasn't like, he just like, oh, it's just for God. Forget it. This is kind of like, that wasn't the case. Like he was showing, let me show you the hand of God, even without mentioning God. So we have to first trust in the providence of God. What is the providence of God? Providence says that throughout history, God still fulfills his covenant promises, even when it seems like he's absent. That he fulfills it. So we got to trust in the providence of God. Number two, we got to trust in the wisdom of the people of God. We got to trust in the wisdom of the people of God because what we'll see and we'll introduce is that Mordecai, next week, Mordecai was introduced to the scene. And in Mordecai, basically, he's brought up, and this is his trusted, like her trusted advisor that she's going in. It's like, I'm just so uncertain about what's going on. And then Mordecai has to challenge her. And he says, and he even gets to a point and says, hey, listen, Esther, like, because it's about to get even worse. The tension's going to go. It's not just about, you know, us not having a place. This is about, like, all the Jews being eliminated. Maybe God has raised you up for, and this is what oftentimes people hear about the book of Esther, for such a time as this. And so he challenges us. So you got to listen to the wisdom. We talk about wisdom, and I say wisdom specifically because, we, you know, I've talked about it many times. Principle, prudence, or preference. Principle means that there's biblical scripture that we can go to, the clear instruction of God. Um, prudence, or in another way we say it's wisdom, it's the things that we can't explicitly find in the Bible, but it's things that we, are, we need to do in light of what God is like. This is the best based upon history and other people around you. And preference is just simply, I like red, you like blue, right? So when we talk about the wisdom of people around, there's a certain things that, that we can't just go find a verse in Scripture to say that we got to trust those people around us that knows, that knows the heart of God and follows the will of God to help us navigate in that. So we have to trust the wisdom of people of God around you. And then the third one is trust in the gospel of Christ. Trust in the gospel of Christ. This is so critical. See, most, the reason why most people have a problem with the book of Esther is because of this. Many people think Christianity is about doing a set of good things. Like, you know, God blesses those who bless themselves. You see, but that's not the gospel at all. The gospel actually is, is that, listen, you're going to compromise. You're going to compromise. You're all like sheep and have gone astray. That's why I sent my son. He lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you deserved so that he could have a relationship or reconciliation with you. You see, so he says, so stop putting your confidence in your ability to stay pure in a compromised world. Instead, trust in the only one who is pure. Trust in Jesus. And we have to transfer our trust and begin to trust in him alone. You see, here's the thing, and here's the truth, and Pastor Carly's coming up now. Many of us and all of us, we all seek the power of the king, but we all play the concubine, and that's the truth. We all seek to be the power of the king, but we all play the concubine. We all beautify ourselves build up our resumes, do our things so that if we can just get that chance to get the power, to get the authority, to get the trinkets, to get the toys, to get the whatever you want, we're building up our resume so we can just get it. We just, you know, we're caught up. We all want the power of the king, but we all play the role of the concubine. And so the, the question is that if we're going to do that, we have to look at the Lord. So here we go. Questions. I said a lot. We want to take on a couple of questions. We're not going to be up here too long. Ten minutes top. Short answers, we promise. This is the only, this is the only one, I think, that we're, that we're going to do this Q&A um, because we just want to kick off this book. We're going to be in this book for the next nine weeks. And we're just going to walk through this story. So much that's a part of this story. But we just wanted to say, hey, we're kicking this off. We want to be able to ask or answer any questions so that even could help us shape some of our sermons um, as we um, prepare. So 
question. Yes, thank you. Thank you for the for the sermon. Um, can you provide, just based on you guys' experiences, uh, an example, a practical example of somebody that is not in ministry but is in the workplace and where you were like, wow, that was that was quite a demonstration of of dealing with that compromise and still representing the gospel. Yeah, so I mean, there's so many. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at this first. There's so many just different examples. I mean, all the way from like whether you're in sales or whether you're in marketing or different types of things. It's like there when we all all face that. Hey, the industry standard is that you have to lie, cheat, steal. You know, in order to make it, and if you don't do those things to make it, you won't have a job. And so, oftentimes, we go in in that in that world where it says, "Hey, I know that is true, but I value something more." And ultimately, what we're saying is that we're valuing is that we value putting food on our table, things. And if I don't come, so come to this compromise of lying about this product or knowing that they're not going to get as much as we're selling or all of those things that I'm not going to meet my numbers and I will not have a job and I will get fired. And so often, so many times we're put into those situations because we want to look good before our king or what we call bosses, you know, and so I think that that is one. Other you know, to that question, um, I don't know if my mic's on. Um, you know, I, I really, one, thank you for setting up this series uh, because I think this is going to be a very practical um, series for us because we do live in the tension every single day. And so even with that question, I think about like when I was working and just outside of ministry, even the simplest thing that we don't think about that it is in some ways... Um, we neglect, uh, so for example, you know, even at work, right? You clock in, right? You take 30 minutes, but then you clock in later, 45 minutes, right? And you take 15, you, you think it's small, right? Uh, but then even in those small things that you know you shouldn't do, but then you're compromised because you just don't want to, right? Um, uh, even even in the smallest thing, I think we have to be aware that we could be compromising or we could be cutting corners. Um, and so I think this book helps us see how we can walk in a way that honors the Lord, even when it seems trivial or even when it seems difficult. And yeah, because there's two things that we all recognize, period. Two great needs that we all have is the need to belong and matter, right? So sometimes it's not even about a paycheck, but it's simply I need to belong and I need to matter, to someone or something. And what oftentimes, and Chip Dodd used to always say is that people will continue to do the things that harm them even if, um, if you don't put a replacement. So I can tell you over and over again that McDonald's is gonna kill you if you keep eating that, but I'm gonna keep eating McDonald's until you put a replacement that is affordable and accessible to me. And I think that is some of the thing is that we end up finding ourselves. That's like the desire to belong and matter in terms of compromise is the reason why we stay in gangs, even though we're convicted, the reason why we do things that we, because we know that I, like, I need to belong and matter. It's the greatest need and see. And I think that is one of the problems that we have in the church, because this is the ultimate place where you can both belong and matter, but we're too busy fighting over carpet and, you know, um, worship songs and preferences, right? And so this is the reason why we talk about what are the principles that we ought to die on instead of kind of some of the, some of those preferences that we have. But so many different things that we have. I mean, like I, I tried to explain at the very beginning, there's so much that I see as believers that we're compromising on over and over and over again, right? That are clear in scripture, but we're not going to something to say, because as soon as you say something, you will be called, oh, you're a part of the oppressor, right? So. I'm new. This is my first time. Thank you for the um, message. It was very um, enlightening. Can you talk a little bit about the um, part of the passage where Esther decides to hide her identity and it kind of made me think about other stories where people needed to hide their identity in order to kind of, I guess, avoid consequences or things of that nature. And how that's not a, well, is it a lie of omission? And um, I guess the application for me is like in our workplaces or like in our um, daily lives, 
how does that apply to us as Christians if we feel that we are in um, danger if yeah. we share our identity? Well, I think that, that is a powerful question. And the point that Esther and the point that we see right now is not, this is not a message. So go and be bold for Jesus. That's, that's the whole point. And that's why so many people, that's why so many people are frustrated with this book, right? Because this is so much compromise. So that is a level of compromise, the fact that you're hiding our identity, right? And the fact that, hey, guess what? God may be okay with you hiding your identity as a Christian on your job. I don't know if you've ever heard that from a pulpit, right? <laughs> no, no, listen. And again, it's not, the book is not saying go out and hide your identity. But sometimes when you're in survival, you do what's best, at least what you think is best. And guess what? Somehow God is still able to accomplish his purposes. You see, because there's too often that we have these pull up yourself by your bootstrap messages, go harder, go faster, go be bolder and all that. And we have a person who is living in a compromised world and is telling the truth about what's going on, right? And so... I would, of course, say, if you can, speak out, be bold, be a witness for Jesus. But sometimes that's, that's not the case. And, you know, the book doesn't really answer whether or not, like, God saw this as a sin, yeah. that she hid her identity, or God commended her yeah. for doing it. And so I think that's kind of like the book of Job. At the end, you read the book, and you're like, Job never got an answer. I think the same way with this book, I think what God shows us in this book is we live in a broken world and then he doesn't expect for us to live through this broken world in perfection, right? And, and with so, that, and with that what, and I'm trying to hold back, you can go back and it's not like you, you have the story, you can go read the story, but God does something where he brings it to a point where it actually becomes a redemptive story. Yeah. A really redemptive part of it. It's like so he can redeem go read ahead. even, yeah, like, like you said, he can e redeem even the brokenness. And I think that's what I love so much about this book is that we can look at all of our brokenness and we see redemptive elements in it. Yes. And so, so there's nothing yes. about Esther's brokenness, Mordecai's brokenness, all the things that perceive to be things that you shouldn't do as a Christian. But we see how God worked all those things for his glory. So there's nothing that God can't do to redeem for his glory. So I love it. Yeah. Amen. Hello. Thank you for the word. My name is Adriana. Hi. My question is, is it wise to call out or bring up tension if I don't have a definitive stance on an issue? And should I be striving to have a definitive stance on difficult issues? That's good. That's good. Man, um, I, I feel like you, we, when we talk, you were going to bring it out. And I don't know if you intend to bring it out later because you talked about three different things, three different ways that we can practically live this out. And I think one of them that you talked about was um, trusting in God's community. Uh, because at times we don't have all the answers, but I think trusting in God's community to help us understand or trusting in God's community to give us wisdom, right? And so, yeah, um, yeah. maybe you can yeah, touch that it's right on there. that. Oh. I mean, basically we talked about okay. the I three was walking is, up. I one is, is, yeah, yeah, no, it's trusting in the providence of God, understanding that if you're not certain about something, don't go start a fight, you know? So, <laughs> so trusting in the providence of God, that God is going to accomplish his task, right? But then they talk about trusting the people of God, and that's really what he's, what Pastor Carly is talking about, is trusting the people of God, but then also trusting the gospel. And I think, so what I like to talk about when it comes to this, I believe as believers, we need to run to the tension, but we have to run with the heart of reconciliation. And I think oftentimes we'll just run to something just to get our opinions out. And I don't think that that's wise, you know, just to give our opinions. What, what it ends up producing, it ends up producing oftentimes for believers is an anti-vision instead of a vision. We yeah. talk about what we're against, but we leave out what we're really for. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes your silence is the best thing that you can do, you know. Um, and, and just, again, so many elements in this book because you see God silent throughout the book. But then at the same time, God is so powerful throughout the book. And so even in those tension, sometimes your silence could be the most powerful thing that you do have to offer. 
Yes, and so throughout the book, you're going to see the providence of God. So I, I teased it today, just talking about God's providence, and you're just going to see it, that theme, keep hitting, keep hitting, God's activity, even though he's seemingly silent. Two more, and then we're, we're done. Can you, can you speak to um, um, uh, trusting people? Or trusting wise people in your life, how God uh, revealed that to you. Uh, I know that we're speaking to Mordecai in this particular instance. Yeah. So, um, uh, how did you how did you determine who that wise person was yeah. in your life? Well, throughout the scriptures, there just talks about wisdom. This, you know, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Beginning of wisdom, many counselors. You see that all through the Psalms, the Proverbs. Um, you see that theme throughout um, in here. And I think that again, it's real easy to kind of bash um, Esther in this. And many people just like, man, I'm more like I want her to be more like Vashti. Fight the power, fight the man. You know what I'm saying? Like Vashti stood up, right? But, you know, and you saw, but it's just like, but you see kind of that. And so throughout the text, you see this here, this dependence and this trust of those trusted people who are coming. And I'm, I am taking a generous understanding of like someone who understands that they serve Yahweh in the kind of general sense, because they do refer to them being Jews multiple times throughout their ethnicity. And part of being a Jew in that time was not just a cult, like an ethnicity, but it was also a cultural, religious. So it's so much that was packed into that. And so, so it's just like those people that you trust their opinion. And that's why I said wisdom, because it's not necessarily mean that this is the exact way to do it. So it's a difference between principle and prudence, right? Um, principles are things that we die on those hills because it's clear in scripture. Prudence about who to vote, who you vote for in this next election is a matter of wisdom. So you want to get around other godly people to ask those questions, to see, to give you, to help you make that decision. Okay. Hey, okay. Um, my question is around dealing with silent seasons. So... I guess, like, how do you practically manage dealing with a season where you feel like you're not hearing God's voice? Or alternatively, as if, like, you mentioned, Job, like, you never get an answer. Because I think it's much easier to say, like, we see the providence and the hand of God on the season because we're, like, outside looking in. But what does it look like? You have a 10-year, 15-year, I mean, potentially, where you feel like you don't hear from God or you may never get an answer. How do you practically manage that? Okay, that's next week, actually. So it we'll actually leave is. you in yes. suspense yes. and wait Come back. until next week. Yes. Right. Amen. This Amen. is what the this is what the book of Esther does. It yes. just leaves us it in suspense. Let's One wait more. until next week. One more in the back, right here. This is actually not my question. This is his question. Wow. Um. <laughs> um Okay, so you, through Esther, you spoke to what it looks like for someone who is basically completely compromised by the world, right? Uh, still is separated or designated by God, right? It's called to be separate, but is basically compromised. So what do you, how does the book of Esther uh, speak to those who are like, you know what, I'm completely withdrawn from the world. I go to, all my kids are in Christian school. I hang around with Christian parents. All my friends are Christian. You know, I'm not engaged in anything. I don't listen to uh, secular music. I don't watch any movies. You know what I mean? So how does the book of Esther speak to how um, those two uh, classes get back to identity of God and speaking, uh, at being a voice for the people of God or for God in their world? I honestly don't know if you can make that direct application, that it's not necessarily speaking to that factor. I think you can juxtapose kind of like a little bit of what we've done with Esther and like Daniel, who people who have chosen to isolate themselves or to still be in it, they're in the world, but to only do the things that are very clear in scripture. So you have that. And so I, I don't know if I can give you an explicit answer in the book of Esther, how that would do it. You would have to do a lot of spiritual gymnastics to, to make really that application. I agree. Um, I, I, I totally agree. I think in, in some sense too, uh, what 
the book also shows us is how God sometimes does place us and we can't run away from that and hide and create like little silos, right? We just have to embrace the fact that we do live in a broken world and broken world needs God's light and we are God's light. And so in some ways, like you not operating in that, you're concealing, right? So in, uh, in a lot of ways where the book is talking about how God conceals himself, but we see through Esther, through Mordecai, this is how God is revealing himself through the way that they are faithful, but then through the ways that they're taking courageous yeah. steps. And so us not walking in our identity and being a light to a broken world, we're kind of hiding God, right? And then how God would want to redeem qualities in our culture. And so it's better for us to kind of embrace that reality that we live in this world and, right. and not run away from it or try to hide from it. Um, so yeah. I appreciate so, it. Yeah. yeah, let me frame offering and then we're going to go. What I'm really encouraged about this book and what we've been saying is that this is a book for those silent seasons that we all have, that we all face, that we all wrestle with. And when we're trying to live courageous in a compromised world when we're certainly uncertain, that's the one thing that we're certain about is our own uncertainty, that like God's hand, and that's what this book is about, is that God's hand is still at work. And oftentimes we don't see it, we don't recognize it, and that's why that first thing is that we have to trust that God is at work even when we don't see it. And I think that that is really the point that we want you guys to get is that in this season, in this time where, you know, it, it seems like God is not at work, that you would, you would trust that he is at work. So let me pray. And we're going to have a time of offering as a sense and as a reminder that he is at work and that we are giving, um, giving him his first fruits back to to him. Father, we're thankful for this time. Thank you for this offering. We pray, God, that you, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, Lord. Allow this fruit, these seeds that are planted, Lord, produce a hundredfold return for your kingdom, for your name's sake. Father, we love you. We bless you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.